fortress you go before us nothing can stand against the power of our god you shine in the shadow you win every battle nothing can stand against the for us, amen. to the ground. 
in the valleys, in the shadow, in the alleys, in the fire, in the flame, always is and always was. No, I never walked Jesus never fails. Amen.
you sing at church your promise? Your promise stands.
so thankful for his goodness, aren't you? This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. Partway through the chapter it gives a dire warning that you by your lifestyle can crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That's how important our lifestyle is. That our lifestyle reflects what we believe. This morning, when we engage in the communion service, we are not reenacting his crucifixion. We are remembering his crucifixion. And we're celebrating that because our lifestyle up to this point says, I was lost, but now I'm found. (laughs) I was broken, but now I'm whole. I walked in darkness, but now I walk in light. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's why we celebrate this morning. This is his goodness. His goodness isn't 60 degrees in February. His goodness isn't getting a raise. His goodness isn't your road being smooth. His goodness is he hung on the cross. And he said, it is finished. And the veil was rent in two, granting us access into the presence of the Father. And we celebrate that this morning. His goodness is running after me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you take the wafer and let's take a moment and give him thanks for his body as we remember the sacrifice that he paid in the flesh for our redemption. Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you for your body that was broken. We remember that and we celebrate what you have provided for us. Healing for us, spirit, soul, and body by your sacrifice on Calvary. And we rejoice in that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake of the bread together. And now, Lord, we lift this cup. This cup is the, we recognize this cup as the new covenant sealed with your blood. Oh, by it we have forgiveness of sins. We have newness of life and an assurance of heaven that your blood still has power today. We're thankful for your shed blood in Jesus' name. Let's partake of the cup together. Now lift your hands, church, and magnify him. He's worthy. Come on, lift your hands and magnify him.
understand, but Lord, more importantly, when we open our hearts to receive your word, anoint your servant this morning. We thank you, God. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Turn to one next to you and say, he is faithful, amen. Glad for hope. Let me hear your hands. Glad for hope. Uh, wasn't that a great message last week? Hope in the middle. I was kind of hoping that guy would show up again this week. <laughs> it was a great message. And I want to say thank you for your great response in the offering time. Um, in the offering, we raised over $5,000. Yeah. And when the weather cooperates, we will be, they will be building a play structure for a terminally ill child to have some time of recreation and fun. And they'll be sending pictures and we're able to team with that and provide an entire system for one of those homes. So again, thank you for your support. Also, once you know, we're teaming with a new church plant in Cedar Falls. They've uh, sent churches started to reach the campus and the community. They're doing a great job. And they had a building come across uh, their way, uh, building and property, and it was over a million dollars, and they couldn't afford that, and things changed. And you know how God begins to work things? So God paid the first 400000 
and they're getting it for 600000 and they raised a down payment, and we were able to make a significant contribution to help them get started that we didn't have to take an offering for or a fundraiser because your generosity, I just want you to know that your generosity helps us be generous to other people in ministry when their needs that arise. So thank you so much for your consistent giving and generosity to bless the kingdom. And if you're glad for what God's doing, let me hear your hands this morning. Amen. I wouldn't normally do this in a little chat time here. I mean, it's so cold out. You're here. Do, are any of you Norwegians? Any Norwegians here? Anybody Norwegian background? Hold up your hands. Come on. Where are you? All right. Great. Well, you are all honorary Norwegians this morning. Making it out this morning, we had some friends in uh, Ames that told us Norwegians said there's no bad weather, only bad clothing. So... <laughs> Glad you made it out this morning in spite of all that's happening. And I wouldn't normally do this, but I just felt this morning I wanted to relax a little bit and uh, give a shout out to Jean and Wanda Nice. They're watching us in Florida. So uh, everybody uh, give a shout out to Jean and Wanda. We, uh, we miss you, Jean and Wanda. And we're a little resentful that you're having such good weather, just so that you know that. Um, got a note from them. Hello from Florida. We got a report from the business meeting and are happy to hear all the good news. Uh, oh, and then glad to have Pastor Kevin back on board. So they're glad for that. They're not here, but they're glad that you're back on board. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to them. And those of you that are watching online, wherever you are in the world, I know there are missionaries that tune in with us and people in other states as well as locally. Please let us know. Go to our web website. Jump in there from time to time. Just let us know that you're there and how you're doing, all right? Well, that's all of my beginning stuff. And uh, Steve, I forgot to grab a microphone. I need a microphone. We already got that taken care of. Oh, that is amazing. So would you turn to Hebrews chapter 6? And one of our teen Bible quizzers is coming right now and going to quote for you from Hebrews chapter 6. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I did get a little bit of the back, uh, or the, uh, I should say, the hallway gossip that as each of these quizzers quote, they're giving each other grief for any spot where they stub their toe a little bit. So if you think that's easy, you can all come up and do it, and we'll do this for the next several years and let you quote. But one more time to all of our teen quizzers. Give them a hand. They're doing a great job. Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. This is one of the toughest chapters in Hebrews and not one of the most fun 
chapters. We've been talking about better things. Hebrews is the book of better things. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels, a better Savior. Chapter 2, you need to pay attention. Chapter 3, don't let your heart get hard. And then we came to chapter 4 about entering the promised land that God has for us. And chapter 5, the importance of the God-ordained priesthood. So we come to chapter 6, and the writer of Hebrews basically says this to us, you are better than that. (laughs) Have any of you ever said that to your kids? You're better than that. Have you ever had an employer say that to you? You're better than that. Mom and dad, a friend, you're better than that. It, It expresses a confidence that you're better than whatever standard you're being measured up against. Some of you will remember that famous Rocky speech, you're better than that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to. It's a difficult and scary chapter. It talks about not being able to renew again to repentance. And often the question will come up from this chapter, what is the unpardonable sin? And I don't have time to unpack all of that except to say that the unpardonable sin is when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means you willingly, knowingly drive the Holy Spirit away from you, cursing him and blaspheming him. So if you are concerned that you might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because in that moment, your spirit dies and there'll never again be an openness to the moving of the Spirit on your side. It's not that God won't forgive you. It's that you can't come to a place of forgiveness. Do you see the difference? That's what makes it unpardonable. I heard it said as I was growing up, the warning of old-time Pentecostal preachers was to guard against sinning away your day of grace. How many have ever heard that phrase? Don't sin away your day of grace. Some of the old-timers here and new-timers will have heard that that line used, the idea being that you can so harden your heart that it's impossible for you to come back and to not take it, not to take that for granted that you can always come back. Well, Hebrews chapter 6 is written in that vein, that it's possible to get to a place that you won't come back and that our hearts need to be tender and soft before God. You see, chapter 6 begins with this word, therefore. Words mean things. They're there for a purpose and when you see the word therefore or wherefore it's telling you that what follows is going to be built upon the foundation of what was previously stated so what was previously stated in chapter 5 that you need to mature that you need to grow that you need someone to teach you the elementary truths you need to be able to discern right and wrong milk and meat you need to grow so therefore on the basis of that teaching chapter 6 opens up now remember we're talking about a better savior and a call to a better relationship with him so i'd say to you this morning you don't have to be cast away you're better than that you're better than that So how can we be sure that we don't fall into that trap? Well, first three verses simply say to us that I would say to you this morning, you can grow. Wherever you are, you have room to grow. How many of you believe that about the person sitting beside you? (laughs) 
They have room to grow. We all have room to grow. We've never gotten to the place where we have learned it all, that we understand it all, that we have arrived at this place of complete perfection. There's room to grow. You can grow. And some things in Scripture, this is important to grab hold of, some things in Scripture are basic. They're elementary. And every believer needs to understand them. That word refers to the first person in a line or that which begins a journey, the origin or active cause. In other words, it's saying to us that there are some things that start your journey, they don't end your journey, and we have a responsibility to master those and then move on from them, not leaving them, but growing on from them. We have a three-step credentialing process in the Assemblies of God, certified minister, licensed, and ordained. And we encourage people in the credential process to complete that process. So I describe it this way. Certified minister is like your learner's permit. It allows you to get in ministry and kind of figure out where you're going. License is like the license to drive. And then ordination, you're qualified to teach driver's ed. There's a moving on. How many of you know more today about driving than you did when you got your permit? If you haven't learned anything, please turn in your license. <laughs> There's a growing, a moving on, a developing that needs to happen. And the basics are listed here. What are the basics that the writer of Hebrews says you need to master at the start and then grow from there? The first is repentance from sin. That is a simple, basic foundation teaching for the Christian life. It's not just invite Jesus into your life and your life gets better. That's not the foundation. What is it? You are on your way to hell. You were bound by sin. You deserve judgment. But this new life in Christ begins where? When you repent of the old nature, you repent of the sin, and Jesus forgives you, and we celebrate that. But you need to move on from that. If you're spending all your life continually repenting of sin, you need to move on from that. He talks to us about faith in God. That's a beginning place. Now, I know from time to time that we may struggle with faith, but you need to grow to a place that that's bedrock, that you don't struggle with that anymore. Believers who are constantly struggling with faith in God haven't mastered the basics. There's a place in God where you quit doubting him. It's called the foundation stone. How many are hearing what I'm saying this morning? Faith in God is basic. Water baptism, it talks about cleansings here. The old NIV says um, washings or baptisms. It's talking about the symbolic rites of the church. The Jews had a number of washings that, 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 that represented this new relationship or growth or development. But for us, that is water baptism. What is water baptism? It is a place where you begin. Are you here this morning? So listen to me, if you struggle with water baptism, you've not mastered the basics. Come on, help me this morning. That's the basics. Those are the ground rules. 
Then it lists here the laying on of hands. What is that about? That's why Paul says to not lay hands on anyone suddenly. Laying on of hands is all about you, about praying for one another and blessing one another. That's not, that's not a mature thing. That's a beginning place to receive prayer, to be prayed for, for God to release gifts in you. The resurrection and the final judgment. We will be raised from the dead. There will be a bodily resurrection and we will all stand before God to give an account of the deeds done in the body. Are, are you seeing, those are found, for some people it's like, wow, that's deep. <laughs> that ain't deep. That's where we start. Hello? That's where we start. And so you need to grab hold of those basics. And one of the concerns that I have in evangelicalism is that we have so broadened our tent to try to let everybody on the inside that we're not even communicating the basics of the faith anymore. It's just believe and you're good. No, it's not just believe and you're good. It's believe and repent and get the, 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 the basics down. We're planning as soon as we can. We're developing now a course that will be offered on Sunday mornings on a recurring basis. We're calling Launchpad. And anyone that wants to get involved in ministry here needs to go through that four-week course. Why? Because it establishes the basics of the faith. There's some basic things that you need to understand. Is anybody in the house this morning? But, but the story is... This is where you start. It's not where you land. What it's telling us is all doctrine is not the same. It's not all the same. There's a depth God is calling you to. We need to grow beyond the basics. Therefore, based on the meat-milk distinction of chapter 5, some doctrine is milk and some doctrine is meat. And you need to grow from milk to meat. You need to grow from the elementary to the deeper things in God. And what you'll find when you grow in the deeper things of God isn't that it's harder to understand. It brings you into a deeper relationship with him. I've contended for years that we have a misunderstanding of what deep preaching is. Put a speaker in the pulpit that you can't understand, that is confusing, and we will say, wow, that was deep. Because really deep preaching is clear to understand and calls you to a deeper place. That's what deep preaching is. That's what we're called to, to develop, to grow. What have you mastered? What are you better at than you were when you started? Now, this is a really interesting phrase, and we're just going to walk through this. So you're, you're going to have to help me this morning, and I, I promise you that, that, that if you respond, it's not like you're sitting outside and you're going to freeze and break. You, it's okay. It's warm in here. All the joints and everything's working. How many are feeling pretty good this morning? You're all right being on the inside. I, I wondered with, and God permitting, we will do so. And God permitting, what in the world does that mean? God permitting. If he's calling us to deeper things and we're to leave the elementary things, why would we need God's permission? You've never wondered. Why would we need his permission? 
Because here's, here's the thing you've got to grab hold of. Spiritual growth is not a cognitive path. It's a spiritual path. In other words, you can't just choose to grow. There are pagans that know more about Christian faith and the Bible than you will ever know. The devil believes and trembles. And if you're going to grow, God has to permit it. In other words, your learning can't exceed your experience. You need God releasing you to the next level of spiritual development that you've mastered the first one. He's ready for you to move to the second one. And when you think that you can simply grow and develop on your own by a cognitive choice, you're going to find yourself stuck in the same spot because anything that happens, happens with the anointing and blessing blessing of God, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. This thing of spiritual growth isn't all about you and your choices. It's about agreement with him and walking with him, walking side by side with the Lord. So I'm saying to you this morning, wherever you are, don't tell me you can't grow. You can tell me you're not growing, but you can't tell me you can't. Because Hebrews 6 says you can. Everyone in this place can grow. Everyone in this place can go deeper in the things of God. Now, once you understand that you can grow, then you must bear fruit. Second, you must bear fruit. That's not a can, that's a must. So beginning in verse 4, this gets a little tough. This is a little tough sledding. It is impossible. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? This is scary. I don't even like to read these verses. It's scary verses. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I thought we're just supposed to have hope and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are. But there ought to be a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of losing our relationship. That we not take it for granted. It is what this verse is telling us, and I've dug into this and dug into this over the years in this past week, is that it is possible to get so far from God that you can't come back. They're writing about Hebrews, Jews, who have embraced this way called Christianity and are considering going back to the law writing to those that are considering going back, there's a price to pay to go backwards. Now, I want you to see it this way. If you are trying to go backwards away from God, I can promise you that the Holy Spirit is going to set a bunch of obstacles in your way to keep you from getting there. If you know of any believer who's had an affair, they had to jump several hurdles to get there because the Holy Spirit won't let that happen easily. 
There's going to be blockades. There's going to be warnings. There's going to be corrections. There's going to be something to try to stop you. He will not let you go back easily. So what kind of person could go back so far that they can't return and repent? Well, it's really talking about someone who has gone into the depths of relationship with Jesus. It's not talking about someone who stumbles and makes a mistake and comes back. It's not talking about someone who goes, goes back into old habits or old lifestyles. Let's look at what he's describing here. Who is he describing? A person who has once been enlightened. What does that mean? It means they've seen light from darkness. They've repented of their sin. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. That phrase is consistent through scripture. John uses the same description. The person we're talking about here is a person who has had an experience with God. They were once enlightened. Then they've tasted the heavenly gift. So those flow together. They've seen the truth. The darkness has rolled back, and they have been born again. They've not just been religious, but they've experienced the life-saving power of Jesus Christ. They did more than pray a prayer. They partook of the heavenly gift, and they've shared in the Holy Spirit. This is a person that I believe this being described here, in addition to tasting the heavenly gift— has been baptized in the Holy Spirit and has spoken in tongues. They've begun to walk in the deeper things of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit. Are you following me so far? They've been enlightened. They've been born again. They've enjoyed the workings of the Holy Spirit in their life. They're familiar with that. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They have feasted on the book. They've had revelation from the Word. It's fed them. There was a time in their life when they cherished what the Word of God said, and then it says the powers of the coming age. That's a reference to the millennial kingdom. And so they have experienced the blessings of the millennium. What does that mean? Well, I don't have time to unpack all of that except to say that they've walked in supernatural power. They've seen miracles happen in their ministry and in their life. So this is a person who has seen the truth, been born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, feasted on the word of God, have prayed for the sick and seen them healed, have seen revelations from God discerning of spirits. This is a person that has walked in the depth and fullness. If that person turns and goes back, there's no way back for them. Why? Because think about what they have to blaspheme. Think about what they have to cast off. To go back, let's reverse it. They have to say, Miracles aren't for today and they're not from God. Well, what about those that he did? Those weren't God. Do you know that's a dangerous thing to attribute the works of God to the works of the devil or to the works of flesh? You have to say that those miracles weren't real. You have to say that this word of God is a lie. You have to say that the Holy Spirit isn't for today. You have to say that being born again isn't real and that light from darkness, there is no right and wrong. When you've gone that far, and then you turn and go back, it is impossible 
for someone who does that to be renewed again to repentance. Why? Because by their lifestyle, they put, they crucify the Son of God afresh. What does that mean? That that crucifixion had no meaning, that had no value, and he is a shameful, a shameful person, a criminal hanging on that cross. You say, can that happen to someone? Not easily. You can't get here easily, but it can happen. I know of a professor at Iowa State University. And when you read about the early days of his life, when he grew up in Mexico, and he found Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And he began to preach at the age of 14. And crowds gathered. And people came forward and invited Jesus into their life. And he prayed for them. And people were healed. There are accounts of phenomenal revivals and miracles coming out of the life of this 14, 15, 16-year-old boy. But then he went to college. And he decided to study world religions. And as he began to study world religions, he came to a place that he thought, they can't all be wrong. That means none of them can be right. And today, he's an avowed, um, vengeful, aggressive atheist trying to destroy faith. I don't believe for that man, there's a path back. Now, I'm not the judge of that. Only God knows when he's crossed that line. Now, I don't know about you, but it's here in the Bible. I'd like to just go to God so love the world. But you got to deal with what's here. And I don't want to be in that place. How do, you, how do you make sure you never get there? You never turn back. You pay attention. You follow the first five chapters. You never turn back. And I don't, want, I don't want this to make you afraid, but here's, here's what I believe about that place that you can get. I don't think anybody wants to get there, and you don't have to get there. And I don't believe we ought to be afraid of God, but I believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that we ought not take our spiritual relationship for granted you can overemphasize grace to the state that you don't care anymore and you're not passionate anymore and you're not hungry anymore. And when you start moving back, your heart will start to get hard and one failure will lead to another, to another, to another. And the warning that should make us afraid is it's possible to go so far out there that you can't get back. How many of you know what a riptide is? We took Bible quizzers to um, California. I think we we're in California with the riptides. We we're in California, weren't we? And took them to the beach. Maybe it was Florida. I don't know where we were. We were somewhere where there was an ocean. And they were warning about riptides. And it's hard to get a young person from Iowa to understand that a lake doesn't function the same as the ocean. How many of you know there are no riptides in the lake? But in the ocean, you can be out there minding your own business and all of a sudden be caught in a reverse tide, a riptide that sucks you out and you're not going to be strong enough to swim back against that. And we were out there 
um, and there was warnings about riptides. The the um, the 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 um, um, lifeguards were hollering out, "Get back in! You're getting out too far," because the problem is once you recognize you're in one, it's too late. I talked to a friend of mine who was in the ocean at the beach in Costa Rica and got caught in a riptide and figured out how to swim across. And they came out to rescue him, but he said it was the most afraid I've ever been in my life because I thought there's no way. You ever watch what happens at the base of a dam? You can be in a boat and minding your own business, but that water at the base of a dam circles like this. And if you get in that, you're dead. And it's too late when you recognize it to get out of it. There are some things we should be afraid of. There are some things we should be afraid of. And one of the things that should... That, that should put a healthy, godly fear. And so I know I can, I can see the cards and letters coming. Hope, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Yes, but there's some things you should be afraid of. And one is to get hard, to not pay attention and start to turn back because there is a line. There is a line from which you cannot return. Now, this is a simple story. Um, but I've had people ask me, um, I've had a little bit of a problem with my left knee. How many of you have noticed me limping from time to time? Yeah, thank you. I don't need any more remedies. <laughs> when I was in junior high, we lived on an acreage and we had a barn. In the barn, we played rafter tag. I don't know, we made it up. Rafter tag was you couldn't be tagged if your feet were off the ground. But once you were on the ground, you could be tagged. So there are only so many places to climb, swing them around on the rafters. And how many adults see that as a great recipe for a train wreck? <laughs> what are you? And we had an old station wagon that my dad parked under the second floor window where we stored the hay. And I would, I would run up those stairs and jump out the window when someone was about to tag me, land on the hood of that station wagon, it was going to be towed away, onto the ground, run back inside and get up on the rafters. Did that again and again and again. Then a day came. Dad towed the station wagon away. And I knew that. But I forgot it till I jumped. Have you ever seen the road runner off a cliff trying to run backwards? That's what I was doing. <laughs> Fell to the ground, landed on this leg. It crumpled up underneath me. And we didn't go to the doctor. How many of you grew up when you didn't go to the doctor? I mean, you may have, you'd go to the funeral home before you went to the doctor. <laughs> so for two weeks, I'm walking along like this. I can't straighten it. Nobody cares. He's mobile. I'm on a bicycle and I'm leaning this way and a friend bumped me and I and to catch myself while well, thinking I straightened my leg and it ripped something. I mean, I almost threw up on the ground. It hurt so bad and I laid there. And then I could walk straight again. But from that day to this at various times, stress or pressure on that knee, I suffer the consequences of a choice I made. When I jumped and it was too late to come back. Do you know anywhere up the stairs I could have stopped? Anywhere running to the window, I could have stopped. But there's a line. Are you hearing me right now? There's a line where you can't come back. You can't unjump out of a window. You're going to suffer the consequences. That's the warning of Hebrews 6. 
We're not playing games. This isn't how many people can we get in the building. This isn't how fast can we grow our church. This isn't how much money can we raise. It's how many people can we make sure make it to heaven. And there's a line that if you cross it, and I just feel pressured in my spirit this morning to warn you that there's a line. When you start down that road, you need to know where that road's going to go. If I want to go to Minneapolis, I don't take I-35 south. When you get on that road, it's going to take you somewhere. And you need to be aware of that. And I know I'm taking a long time here, but I want, to, I want it to settle down into our hearts that when we begin to head the wrong way, it can become a habit that will take us further from which there is no return. So how do you tell? Well, he says this, that um, in verses, uh, in the section four to eight, land, verse seven, that drinks in rain, often falling on it, produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. Now watch this. When the rain falls on the crop, can the crop make the rain fall? No. Where does the rain come from? From God. When the rain falls on the ground, the ground has a responsibility to respond rightly to the rain and produce a crop. And it's not the crop that's the blessing. So the picture is this. The rain falls on the ground. The ground receives that. The seed already sown there germinates and grows. Then that crop is produced and God blesses the crop. That's an important progression. We think that God's blessing is on the crop. God's blessing follows the crop. So when you, see, when you receive the blessing of God, you're accountable now to produce something good with that. We live in the, we call it the land of the free, the home of the brave, a place where there is religious freedom. That's the blessing of God that rains on us. But when that rain falls on us, we're accountable to do something with that, to produce something. How many are hearing what I'm saying? To produce something. And when you produce a good crop, then you'll experience his favor. I hope you see the distinction. Because the other side is, when the rain falls on the ground and it produces thorns and thistles, that ground is damned by God. The word is cursed, but it means to be damned. And, and I know this may rattle you, but God is not your grandpa. He's not Santa Claus. He's the sovereign of the universe. And the God that blesses can also curse. We need to be reminded of that today. People are saying things today and doing things today, producing thorns and thistles. Judgment day will come. They'll stand before God and give an account, and you will too. Every sermon you've sat through, every time you've sensed his spirit, every blessing that's rained on you, you're responsible to produce something. And if you produce a crop, you'll be blessed. If you produce thorns and thistles, you'll be cursed. By who? By God. The same God that raised the dead 
smote Ananias and Sapphira. The same God that opened the eyes of blind Bartimaeus, blind the sorcerer. He's capable of both. I'd be lying to you just to tell you that he's all benevolence. There's also judgment on some. Is anyone, are you with me this morning? So the call is to produce fruit. What is fruit? Well, that's a really good question. It's simply this. Fruit is evidence of the life that's in you. An apple tree doesn't produce pears. A pear tree produces pears. How do you know that that pear tree is a pear tree? Well, the leaves and the bark and all of that. But how do you know if it's healthy when it produces fruit? A pear on the branch says the life of the pear tree is good. So I'm not going to give you a list of things that are fruit. I'm saying to you, that's your call. If we went around the room this morning, what evidence could you give that Jesus is alive in you? What evidence could you give? There'll be moments. Are you open to share and respond? The other morning, and I, I want to be careful. I, I don't want to reveal or break any kind of a confidence, but one morning this week, I was at the gym, and I thought, I don't know anybody in here. I'm going to get my routine done early and get out of here early. And I'm sitting there on a machine when a guy that I maybe have said hi to, I don't even know his name, walked up to talk to me. By the time he's done, I'm trying to counsel him. Tears are running down his face. And we spent a half hour talking about how Jesus will get you through those tough times. Jesus is our answer. I didn't have time for that. I was in a hurry. I was busy that day. Is anyone hearing me? But there was something on the inside of me that said, this is the most important thing you're going to do today. What was that? It's evidence that there's a life on the inside of me different than my life on the inside of me. What evidence can you give of the life of God on the inside of you? Now I know some of you will think this is silly. What time is this? Oh, how did we get here? I was listening to some music on, on, uh, on, on, the, on the computer. I was watching a video, of, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm just sitting there. Something came up, turned it on, and then something on the inside. I'm sitting there in my office, and something overwhelmed me. I have my hands raised, tears running down my face. Do you know what that is? That's evidence of life on the inside of me. Is anyone hearing me this morning? Fruit is evidence of the life on the inside of you. So then, you have to bear fruit. Number three, you need to be diligent. That's where he says, all of this failure, we're convinced of better things in your case. You're better than that. There's no reason to suffer these consequences. You don't have to produce thorns or thistles. God is not unjust. If you're continuing to bless him, you will continue to produce good fruit. And it says the key is, verse 12, don't be lazy. I found something funny when I looked up that Greek word for lazy. Do you know how else it can be interpreted? Stupid. <laughs> so I'm just going to say it this way. 
Lazy, stupid Christians aren't going to make it. <laughs> I've wanted a verse that would say that for a long time. Lazy, there's no room for laziness or stupidity in the kingdom of God because you won't make it. Don't be lazy. Don't be stupid. Be diligent. You need to be diligent. Stay on task. And then verses 13 to 20, lastly, here's where it all comes. Here's where it gets better. We have a promise. Beginning of verse 13, talks about the certainty of God's promise. So here's an amazing thing. Watch this. God made a promise to Abraham. Now, how many know that God cannot lie? And that when God makes a promise, it will come true. But God wasn't content with that. So God made a promise to Abraham, and then he swore to the promise by an oath that it would come to pass, and he swore it on his own character. It's a double emphasis. God, who cannot lie, made a promise and then swore to the promise with an oath so that by two immutable things, you and I might have hope. It wasn't that he needed to do that so that he would be held to it. He did it to show the emphasis that God puts on his promise. Abraham, you're going to leave your city and I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to prosper you and I promise that and I swear to it so that you will have hope. Every promise of God, every promise of God is honored by his oath. He makes a promise and he confirms it with an oath. You can trust what he says. The promises of God to prosper you and to be with you and to use you to bless the nations. The end is better than the beginning. All that is promised by God with an oath. If you have enough patience to wait for it, it will come to pass. And it is that hope that is an anchor for your soul. (laughs) In all of that, it doesn't rest on you. It rests on him and his character and his integrity. We have hope as an anchor for the soul. Now watch. Look at how this ends. Pastor Nathan, if you'd come. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. (laughs) Are you ready for this? Somebody's going to feel like running and be okay right now. I'd be glad for someone to run around the room about 10 times. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. So you're about to enter the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Do you know what was behind the curtain? That's the place where the high priest went in once a year. And if he wasn't right, God would strike him dead. You're about to peek in the curtain. This hope lets you look behind the curtain. And what do you find there? Jesus. Jesus is sitting there. He's on the mercy seat. His blood is the covering. That's our hope. That's our anchor. It's not, you say, well, I don't know if I can do all this. You don't have to do it all. You just have to hang on to the promise. Hang on to hope because Jesus is inside the veil interceding in your behalf. And he's there to make sure that you have everything that you need in order to make it our great high priest. Woo! is inside the veil where the glory of God dwells. So we start off in this place where it's serious business. 
But about the time you're about to despair of your own abilities, you get to peek inside the curtain. <laughs> and Jesus is there. We must grow. We must bear fruit. We must be diligent. And we have a promised promise. You're better than that. You don't have to go back. You don't have to fail. You don't have to lose ground. You're better than that because he's given us a promise that he's sworn to with an oath. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, I know we've been all over the map this morning, and some of you are thinking, oh, dear Lord, I didn't brave this cold weather to have to listen to this mess. But I'm telling you, we have hope as an anchor for the soul. Let's stand together. Pastor Nathan's going to lead us. I want us to close by just magnifying Jesus. Can we do that? He's inside the veil. He's, he's there over the mercy seat. He's promised with an oath to bless and prosper us and bless the nations. Let's magnify our King of kings and Lord of lords. I have this hope. Yes.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this hope, an anchor for the soul, <laughs> the promise that stands, and we cling to that in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Sometimes we have to see a glimpse of hell to understand how wonderful heaven is. Sometimes you have to see the consequence of destruction to understand the glory of redemption. We don't have to be afraid. We need to anchor to hope and anchor for the soul. 